Hello, this is Janina. I'm just here at the top of the episode to um, apologise a little bit. We had some technical problems recording this episode that we didn't pick up on until a couple of days later when Oliver went to edit it. And we are sorry about that and we will do our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. Oliver has done his best to make it still sound good for your podcast ears. Um, but we're very sorry if there are, if it is harder to listen because of the errors. And again, we won't do it again. I mean, we might. But we'll try not to. We'll try real hard. Thanks. Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? All right. Ticking along. Yes, yeah. Happily pedaling along reasonably warm which I haven't been for about two days so that's good oh that's quite nice I'm a bit cold because we got winter back in yeah London. winter it, came back here it, it, snowed it was yesterday. summer for a while and now it's winter again and I turned a lot of the heating off and so now I'm a bit cold I am just gazing at the weather reports from Spain because I'm going to Spain next week oh, so nice. I'm just what part like of Spain? I'm going to Barcelona and Pamplona that'll be lovely are you going for a professional important I'm going to do uh, yeah professional book reasons that's very exciting I know I'm kind of terrified because one I speak no Spanish and two (laughs) like I think I'm going to be interviewed by like magazines and things and I have never been interviewed by people so I I don't know what nonsense is going to come out of my stupid mouth I cannot wait to find out (laughs) I will never know though which is good because it'll be in Spanish (laughs) that is very good that's very true so yeah, I suppose I can say whatever I like and it'll be fine. <laughs> I always get the thing I hate about being interviewed or even doing like Q- Q&As and things is that it, I've become, and I'm sure it's not true, but it feels very true whenever I hear questions. I've become convinced that everyone who is asking me questions has thought way harder about the book I spent years writing than I ever did. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a terrible author. I didn't give it anywhere near this much thought. Yeah. I worry about when I was an academic and used to do Q&As at the end of like panels, which is that I would not actually listen to the question. And this never actually happened to me, but I always worried that it would and that I would panic and not hear the question properly and then just have to be like, I do not know what you said. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't understand the words that came out of your mouth, which has never happened, but it's nice. It feels like a real flashback to be worrying about it again. <laughs> well, that's nice. So, yeah. It's, it's so nice that's to my... relive your past yeah. fears and so know that's... that this is the career you've chosen and you're going to have to do this over and over again for the rest of your life. Thanks. I'm going to stare into the <laughs> abyss now. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, here we answer questions and I've got loads of time to think about it because this is History of Sexy. Yeah. And we get questions and then we think about them for like a week and a half and it's great. It is great. What question are we... Oh, we should probably also... I'm Janina and I am a writer. Yes, you are. And you're Emma and you're a historian. Yeah. And between us, we answer people's history questions and then show them that it's sexy and or complicated. Yay! And this week, we're, this is it's going to be fun for me because for once I have done zero research <laughs> because this is clearly a plant by Janina. <laughs> In fact, um, I've never met Poppy Leite. I'm sure she's a real person. But if I found out that she was a Janina Matthewson sock puppet like running a long con by asking questions that weren't about musical theatre... I would not be surprised. Um, I do. I've never met uh, Poppy Leite either. I have no idea who this is. Um, <laughs> if it's if if they are a sock puppet of mine, it's something that I'm doing in some sort of dissociative state <laughs> without my own awareness. Oh, that's terrifying. I hope it's not that. Me too. What question did a Poppy ask us, Janina, to make you happy? The question is: Why are many musicals slash theatre productions based on revolutions? For example, Lamers and Hamilton. Excellent. Which is right in my wheelhouse because I studied musical theatre for three years. Yeah, um, you have a literal degree in musical theatre. I have a literal degree in musical theatre and it's one that makes me quite cross because there are three theatre performance or based degrees in New Zealand. Like There are three schools that offer a bachelor's degree in performance and the two that I didn't go to, they, they give you... <laughs> 
Yeah. They give you a Bachelor's of Fine Arts. Oh. Specialising in performing. So you get a B- like a BFA. You get a BFA. My shitty school gave you a Bachelor of Performing Arts. Oh. Which is not a, a thing. A BPA. BPA. It sounds like a chemical that isn't in water bottles. <laughs> like it's like BPA free. Yeah. And I think they do it because that fine arts degree requires more written work. I think you probably have to do some form of dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> Which we did not. We were much more... We had we did have some written work. We had to do assignments and stuff, but it was much more performance-based. Oh, see, in my head, I imagine entire degree is just being, like, fame, basically. Just a lot of people <laughs> dancing on tables at any given moment. Yeah, yeah, basically. Spending yeah. an hour every morning like stroking your cheeks to try and loosen up your jaw yeah a lot of like you know growing like a tree and then yeah yeah a lot of that um yeah yeah basically whereas i have no experience in or particular liking for musical theater i have of these two that poppy has mentioned being les mis and howlton i have never seen either of them mm-hmm. I have never I have heard songs from Les Mis because Connor my partner quite likes it mm-hmm. but I have never even heard a song from Hamilton and I think the last musical I ever saw I know the first musical I ever saw was uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph is an Amazing Technical Dreamcoat mm-hmm. I mean that one that one kind of slaps uh, it does I listened to that a lot when I was younger but mostly because I fancied Jason Donovan at the age of eight. That is um, fair. And, uh, and I think I saw Starlight Express. Oh, sorry about that. Um, which I remember nothing about. Yeah, because so there's nothing that in is <laughs> The entirety of my experience of musical theatre, which is none. Great, sure. And um, so far, nothing has persuaded me to listen to Hamilton. Maybe this will be the day. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's not historically accurate at all. Um, I mean, fair. But that's the, I mean, you know, obviously all of these are very fictionalised versions of a thing. We, we know that, we're adults. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. But yeah, it's very, very good and I, I do recommend it. I think the hype is justified. Um, it's also kind of has the added effect of shining a light on the theatre as a really exclusive industry in there I heard and this is I can't I don't I this is something I heard it is a rumor I did not delve into this at all but apparently that London production of Hamilton was really hard to cast because you have to be trained to sustain that kind of show like you have to have some form of and just performance endurance training more than anything else um, sure, they're hours and hours long and then you do them like twice a day for months. Yeah, and it's singing and dancing at the same time while still, you know, giving while a performance as well. that yeah. puts something across. And yeah, so they found it really hard to cast because theatre training in this country is really expensive and exclusive and skews very, very white. Oh uh, yeah, very so, white mid and upper class. Yeah, which I think is one of the great things about Hamilton as a production is that that's kind of the point like it shows how uncommon it is to see that many non-white bodies on a musical theater stage in general which is a big problem anyway that's not history that's current times so i mean will you tell me what the actual plot of Hamilton is yes i vaguely know the plot of les miserables which is something something sad sex worker something something i'm not a number something something french revolution i mean that kind of sums it up yeah les so yeah for anyone who doesn't know either of these i'll run through the plot briefly thank you les is based on the novel by victor hugo and it follows two men who are very antagonistic with each other so it starts with a guy called Jean Valjean who if your only reference is in the film is the film is played by Hugh Jackman in the recent fairly recent uh, film version who is a prisoner he gets released and because he is starving steals some bread to survive and I think he steals a bunch of candlesticks from a guy who then like forgives him and gives them to him to go away oh, I know so this he bit. Can... He's a bishop. Yeah. And he steals from a bishop and then the bishop is like, oh, it's okay, I forgive you as long as you use it for good or something. Yeah. 
But a policeman called Javier, who is Russell Crowe in the film, just decides that he's gonna chase this guy down until he finds him. But he never quite manages to find him. So Jean Valjean takes those candlesticks and starts a business and becomes rich. And then there is a woman working one of his factories with a baby who everything goes wrong for her and she has to she has to sell her hair and her teeth and she dies and asks Jean Valjean to take care of her baby who he does and she grows up to a young beautiful woman who falls in love with the least the less attractive of the revolutionaries the other one is <laughs> way hotter she falls in love with a guy called Marius this is the thing about it like she's in love with Marius who's in love with her and then there's also Eponine who is in love with Marius too and right beside him is Injuras who is like way hotter and more interesting and like he's the really fervent like revolutionary who leads the charge and no one is no one is crushing on him and it just doesn't make any narrative sense <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah maybe they're yeah. just like you know he's got other things on his plate yeah he's got a revolution this guy looks like he's only 75 percent into the revolution looks like he's got 25 percent room for banging yeah that's fair that is true but you have to remember also that in the film at least Marius is played by Eddie Redmayne, which is just... Oh, Christ. Who, his singing is appalling as well. And then Andras is played by Aaron Tveit, who is just a very beautiful man. Anyway, then a revolution happens and a bunch of people die, but Marius and Cosette end up happily ever after and it's all fine. But the thing about it is, I, like, and I'm very sorry to Connor, I fucking <laughs> hate like this. <laughs> um, I didn't like I didn't see it for a long time which is another I have a personal hatred of this and many other musicals like it because and actually I I couldn't I tried to fact check this this is something that I heard when I was at drama school if you want to put on a production of Les Mis you have to build a barricade and, and okay. similarly if you want to put on a production of Miss Saigon which is from a similar era this long period of musical theatre sort of 80s and 90s where everything was bombast and everything was big so if you want to put on okay. Saigon you have to have a helicopter or they, or they won't give you the rights if you can't do the helicopter they won't give you the rights which Can it makes be like it a obviously... cardboard helicopter no Okay, it has to be a literal helicopter. Yeah, so that people can... Yeah, it's ridiculous. So it makes it impossible to put on low-budget, local amateur productions of these shows. This does explain why I've never seen a low-budget amateur version of Les Mis, or indeed Miss Saigon. You can get high school rights if you want to do a school production, and the requirements are a lot smaller. But basically... Because we did a high school version of Joseph and his amazing kind of colour dream coat, which was great yeah, for me. Yeah, no, that's easy. You don't need anything except a coat. No, we did just have the coat. You do need more boys than normally sign up for the high school musical. I think ours was very popular, actually. Mm. But the I say high school, this was middle school. We were 11. Yeah. But it was a big deal. It was a real big deal. Only the year sevens were allowed to do it. I was a dancer, which given that I have the rhythm and bodily coordination of a person in a coma being electrocuted was <laughs> some severe miscasting, but I had a good time. Well, that's all that matters. It um, is. Uh, so I had, we had the soundtrack for Lemurs on vinyl when I was growing up. I think my sister had bought it at a garage sale or something. So I knew the music really well and I, I knew the story because, I don't know, the story seeps in. I think I saw like a really weird French like modernization of it at some point as well I kind of knew the story but I'd never seen the show until I moved to London and I went to see it with my sister who had come to visit me and my partner who at the time I'd been seeing for like a few weeks was like let's go see a big western show we'll go to Lemurs and then we came out of it go to Lemurs I made Jamie go to Lemurs and then we came (laughs) out and he was like we we hadn't been seeing each other for very long so he was like how how long can I do it how, when can I tell her that I hated it? And then he did, and I was like, yeah, don't worry, I hated it too. Because the thing about it as a musical is that it's this one central relationship between Jean Valjean and Javier, and it's not a very interesting one because it's just every so often Javier pops up saying, I hate him, I must catch him, and Jean Valjean's like, hey, I'm rich and powerful now, what are you going to do? And then other people pop up and like have a song and then die, and... <laughs> And in addition to that, 
it's wall-to-wall anthems. Like, every song is this intense emotional, either, like, do you hear the people sing or this emotionally gut-wrenching of I dreamed a dream or that sort of bullshit. So you just never have a break. Like, there's a bit (laughs) in the second act where Eponine gets shot and she sings this song called A Little Fall of Rain. And it's literally the only song I can stand when when I watch the show play out because it's the only time it's quiet. (laughs) This is really gentle and nice and I just need a break. So I'm sorry to anyone. I know Lemus is very popular. It's the longest running musical in the world, the Western production, I think. But... It sucks, and I don't think it works as a musical. I'm really sorry. Okay. The music I mean, bangs, though. Like, a lot of the songs are really, really good. It just... I mean, when you look at the book, and you're like, that needs to be squashed down into a two-hour, three-hour stage book. show. Yeah. It's a big ask. Yeah. I and, mean, it feels like they've done a better job than anyone's ever done with The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is one of my favourite books, mm. mostly because it's fucking depressing, and none yeah, of the pretty versions are anywhere near as depressing. Um, everybody dies or is sad except the bad guy yeah and he's just bitter and twisted and well he's kind of all right he he has fun with it (laughs) he has fun with it he watches poor oh no i'm not going to do spoilers for the end of hunchbacks everyone should read it's great if you just want to be real depressed i read it when i was like a bang on the right age to read it which was about 15 you've got to wonder about the disney executive who read that book and was like this one for our children yeah i don't know why anybody would read that and be like you know what this needs some songs (laughs) but i don't know how (laughs) to be honest that's not something that i think about most things i would never read that bit of the bible and be like you know what this needs some bangers (laughs) And yeah, both Joseph and Jesus Christ Superstar. Great, crackers. great shows. Absolutely crackers, yeah. Fucking good shows. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've seen Jesus Christ Superstar as well. Yeah, it's very That good. was a high school production. Oh, well, that's not for that <laughs> But yeah, okay. So now tell me Hamilton. So Hamilton, which I first heard about on Twitter when Nicole Cliff was being very shocked that friend of the podcast, Ella Risbridger, uh, was surprised by all the dueling because... I think this story is so baked into American identity that like it's not, it wasn't a surprise for any of them. And I definitely had knew a little, I mean, I studied a bit of American history, so I knew a little bit about it, but not a lot. So basically it follows Alexander Hamilton, who was okay. born on a, I don't think we anyone actually knows for sure which Caribbean island he was born on, but he was an illeg- the illegitimate child of uh, some random Scotsman and probably a prostitute who was living on the island. There's speculation that he was mixed race, but that seems, I don't think that's confirmed and it seems unlikely. Okay. Given the position that he had when he was older. So basically he was a really good writer. So the people in his town clubbed together to send him to New York to get an education and make something of himself because they all thought he was very, pretty hot stuff. So we went to New York, got involved with the revolution, became um, an aide-de-camp to George Washington during the Revolutionary War. So when they won that war, that, and that's kind of Act 1. Act 1 is him being a 19-year-old, showing up in New York, meeting all of these guys, including the, like, the first person he comes across is Aaron Burr, which will matter later on. Uh, skip ahead a couple of minutes if you don't want spoilers for Hamilton. <laughs> but it is yeah. history. I feel like it's history. It's not. This is like when people tell me that they're spoiled, when I spoil them in the book, like when I'm talking about my book and I go, oh yeah, and then Nero killed her. Yeah. Um, like it happened 2,000 years ago, lads. Like, this is, Jamie told me off This for, happened for 300 years ago. Yeah, that Petrocles died of a plague and, and <laughs> that's one of the reasons why Athens lost the Peloponnesian War because uh, he's playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey and... Spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. This is what happens when people make things out of history. You can't be worrying about spoilers. Yeah. So the first act of Hamilton is basically that, him arriving at 19, making friends with all these revolutionaries, getting involved with the war meeting a girl and falling in love and getting married and then it ends with him just after they've won the war becoming a lawyer and then being asked to be in Washington's government being asked to be the secretary of the treasury and then act two follows his sort of political career as he butts heads with Thomas Jefferson because they hated each other then he has a the, America's first ever political sex scandal amazing which he 
uh, writes, he publishes an account of because he's been accused of embezzling from the gov- from the government funds. To mm-hmm. refute that, he's like, I wasn't embezzling, I was just fucking some woman um, and paying off, off uh, her husband <laughs> because he found out. This money was just resting in my account. Yeah. Okay. And then... And also, I was banging this lady. Yeah. <laughs> so... In response to that, his son gets into a duel with a fellow student. He, at that point, he's at university and is killed. And then Hamilton comes back, like disappears for a while, and then comes back in the middle of an election between where Thomas Jefferson is running against Aaron Burr, who was one of his earliest friends uh, when he moves to New York. And he backs Thomas Jefferson over Aaron Burr. Even though he hates him. Yeah, because this whole thing is that Aaron Burr will never confirm what he actually thinks. So he's like, I disagree with Jefferson about absolutely everything, but at least I know what he thinks. Whereas Aaron Burr, I don't even know what he... Okay. Yeah. So then... Okay. Yeah. And because of the laws at the time, the person who came in second in the presidential race becomes the vice president. Yeah. So we get to a point, Thomas Jefferson wins the election... Aaron Burr is vice president, but he's all shirty because Alexander Hamilton, who was supposed to be a friend of his, had endorsed Jefferson, opposed against him. So he challenges Alexander Hamilton to a duel, and Hamilton doesn't shoot. He puts points his gun at the sky instead of shooting, and Aaron Burr shoots him, and he dies. And that's the end. Well, there's a surprising amount of dueling for a story there's about so politics. much dueling. I didn't even mention all the dueling that happens. <laughs> <laughs> there's more dueling than that. Okay, so basically we've got Lemers is like some sad people in the lead up to the revolution. Yeah. The French Revolution. Does it have the revolution in it? Um, it does have the does revolution. Does it have like the storming has, of the Bastille and stuff? It has. Lo- I don't think it has the storming of the Bastille. It has lots of people dying on barricades, um, okay. including an adorable little boy who goes hunting around, like he goes out to steal bullets off dead bodies. Yeah. and bring them back to the revolutionaries and then he just gets shot and he's a tiny child so that's sad yeah and yeah there's lots of there's lots of dying in the streets for the Lemers gang but in but Hamilton all like... the dying happens outside of the revolution okay does it have does that one got battles and things it does it has like the battle of Yorktown which was one of the crucial battles to win the war yeah that's probably that it has okay. like it has done talk about the battles battle. There are rat battles, but not in actual <laughs> battles. Rat battles. So they have not met, like, made the <laughs> battles metaphorical by having them be rat battles, no. which I've just thought of, and I can't believe they didn't think of it. No, they they have rat battles for like congressional debates. Mm, that seems a bit literal, yeah. but okay, I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> Now that I've thought of my good metaphorical thing, I'm kind of disappointed. In <laughs> you should tweet them Manuel Miranda and tell him he missed a trick. What I like um, about Hamilton is that it has at least two direct references to my brother, my brother and me. <laughs> oh yeah, because they're friends, aren't they? Yeah, they're totes buds, which is fun. Okay, and then Hamilton has like the whole Revolutionary War. Pretty much. Then, I mean, it's all like, very skipped over you know okay so it's more alexander hamilton just happens to have been in the war rather than it's about the war i mm, i mean it's about both i think but i'll get to that because i think that's that's one of the big answers to this question because this i mean this isn't so much telling history this is like interpreting how we use history and fiction which is so totally my bag um i'm genuinely so excited about this question (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think it would be helpful to talk about what qualifies as a revolution and handily I had Mm. this book from when I was at university called Revolutions by a guy called Alan Todd which I think was published by the Cambridge University Press amazing did you do this is going to turn out you did a fucking module in revolutions in musical theatre or something (laughs) no I did a module in revolutions in normal university which I went back to several years after drama school where I realised I wasn't (laughs) getting a job (laughs) Um, but so he talks about revolution as being a, a a widespread attempt by the people of a particular society to completely transform the social economic political and ideological features of their society it's not a question of just repealing some laws it's about seeing the whole system as 
being broken and needing to yeah, be by trying pushed to aside. completely replace the system. Yeah, complete. Yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things that there are there are certain things that have to be in place for a revolution to succeed. And this is true both of widespread whole political system revolutions like the American Revolution and the French Revolution, but also of smaller social movements like the same things. I studied linguistics for a bit and the same things come into play when you look at the fight to preserve Te Reo Māori in New Zealand when it was a dying language. Like mm-hmm. the things that you need are amongst the people who the change is going to benefit, whatever it is, there needs to be widespread, almost universal desire for that to happen. There needs yeah. to be like outspoken support from the dominant social group. So you look at the French Revolution and there were nobles who were writing in favour of the revolution yeah. and that sort of thing. Like there has to be... It can't just be the people with the least power. No, there has to be support across the whole of society, basically. Or else the revolution isn't going to stick. It's yeah. just a, it's going to be a battle. And revolutions tend to happen when things have started getting better. So we've talked before, obviously, about how the fact that all social change is driven by volcanoes. Yep, all of it. All of history is volcanoes. Yeah. <laughs> So when that, you know, when an ash cloud forms and crops die and the economy suffers and everything becomes expensive and everyone is starving and no one can see any hope, revolutions don't happen because hope is the thing that they need. So once things start to improve and people have a strong desire for positive change and a firm belief that it is possible both on a society level and that they as individuals can help implement it, that's what causes revolutions they can't happen when everything is so bad that all you feel is despair ah or when you are just trying to get to the next day you have to be able to envision a future yeah you don't have the energy for a revolution basically at that point and they run through several stages so there's an early stage where there is very specific goals there are a few key figures who are campaigning for change and that change is very well defined and then as that gains momentum it spreads until people want specific changes themselves that aren't necessarily united so things fracture into different groups and there's warring Mm -hmm. and the initial leaders of the revolution tend to be seen as too conservative by that point yes and then the third stage is when the revolutionaries have to take some kind of power and, and actually affect, like they've been given the opportunity to actually affect the change and now they've got to knuckle down and do it, which is when things often revert back to the first ideological stage where everything's clear cut and a little bit yeah. you know, more cleanly thought through and less emotionally driven for the sort of administration <laughs> the administration phase yeah. of the revolution the bit where people have to start doing paperwork and paying for roads yeah and there are other to have a really clean and simple view of revolution that's what you reductive. need yeah uh, yes maybe reductive but like I think for the purposes of this question it's worth looking yeah. at things that aren't technically revolutions like or, or could qualify you could debate them that they are, for example, you've got hairspray, which takes place on the background of the civil rights movement. Yeah. You've got Evita, which involves about 10 military coups. Yeah. <laughs> or even Made in Dagenham, which is about a union movement oh, in yeah. London, you know, that sort of thing. Which then, I guess, Billy Elliot, as well as the same sort of situation, takes place on the back of a union movement, which was ultimately yeah. unsuccessful. It's like a revolution gone depressing, which is sad. Yeah. A revolution gone depressing. <laughs> well, yeah, they suppose they can't all succeed. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, and there are specific, like, successful revolutions share so many characteristics that when a revolution fails, it's kind of easy to point to why. Like, yeah, this one didn't have any support from anyone but this one group of people, so it, you know, burnt out, or this one just wasn't widespread enough, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There are loads of reasons they fail. But yeah, so that's basically revolutions. And then why why are there so many musicals and theatre productions? And fiction in general, right? Like this is a really hot topic, whether they're real revolutions or fictional ones, for a well, both, lot of fiction. I mean that's this is Star yeah. Wars, right? This is the yeah, Hunger Games. Yeah. That that comes up a lot. 
everybody likes a fictional revolution because, you know, fighting against tyranny and I think especially seen as uh, so much of it is produced by Americans (laughs) and they have that narrative of like that their country was created out of a revolution which actually i discovered this week from rex factor podcast actually (laughs) that europeans have a tendency to call the american revolution the war of independence and to see it from the perspective of independence from the british empire (laughs) and apparently some americans i don't know if it's all of them get really annoyed by that and they're like, it's not wasn't a war of independence, it was a revolution. Yeah, which is really ironic when you consider how opposed to any sort of political upheaval or criticism America is now. Yes, but in their fiction, they love the idea. <laughs> like, the American political system is bonkers, but <laughs> you can't say that there now, you'd be called unpatriotic. Yes. Uh, but a part of it is because they have such a, you know, I well, I'm writing at the moment about Romans and Ro- how much Romans think that their past was perfect, no matter how far in the past it was. Mm-hmm. So two years ago was more perfect than now, and five years ago was even more perfect than that, and a hundred years ago was about extremely perfect, and the moment at which they revolted was the most perfect that they ever were. That's such a depressing way to live. Everything is always getting worse. <laughs> Yeah, basically, everything is always getting worse and everybody is always trying to get back to the perfect point Mm. or trying to maintain the perfection of 20 minutes ago. And so the revolution was perfect. Yeah. And should it be necessary for there to be another revolution, they're ready to go. Yeah. But it won't be because America is perfect. That is, though, one of the answers to this question of why why are revolutions in especially big bombastic dramatic productions is patriotism like the american revolution is such an integral part of american identity and i think this is true of the french revolution as well right like that idea of egality Mm -hmm. liberty liberty egality fraternity like that's a revolutionary narrative yeah and and the revolution is also where france gets its sort of proudly secular ideology in part, the revolution was against the church and against the church's relation to nobility. So uh, these two particular examples are about more than just the revolution. They're about the countries that they're set in and were w- written in about their identities. Yes, um, about redefining that, well, recreating that part of their... Yeah. They're both about the beginning of the country anew, really. Yeah, completely. And about what makes the new country your country like there's a there's a bit in Hamilton that there's a line that just says immigrants we get the job done which in the new original New York production Lin-Manuel Miranda ended up having to compose additional music to go after that line to play through the round of applause it gets every time because <laughs> people just go nuts because New York has such an immigrant identity and yeah I mean the whole country has an immigrant identity other parts of it tend to deny that a lot um but New York is very, like, that's where immigrants yeah. landed traditionally. You know, that's where Ellis Island is. It's where the Statue of Liberty is. It's a very multicultural city. So that line plays really dramatically. When I saw the show in London, that line got almost nothing. Oh. Because as many immigrants as there are here, particularly in London, it's not part of the cultural identity that this is a country built on immigration. Although it yeah. is... Because Although it is, yeah. It's not the story we tell. No, it's not. Yeah, whereas in America it very much is. It's very interesting watching how something that specific plays into different cultures. Because also, and I found this really unnerving, because um, King George features in Hamilton. He just pops out every now and again to do a, <laughs> to do a wee song is about he how... Evil? He's not so much evil as he is kind of mewling and pathetic. Like he has this one song that he has three different versions of where it's like he's a really clingy boyfriend trying to beg his girlfriend to stay with him. That's his sort of shtick. Don't leave me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So he's more pathetic pathetic and sniveling uh, than he is evil. But yeah, and he got wild applause 
<laughs> every time he came out on stage in London, which I think is just because an English character. But for me, as someone from Amazing. a colony, I was like, this is weird. This is really, that really is weird. weird. I mean, just in general, that's super weird. Like, I mean, he was very popular in his time, but I yeah. don't, probably hasn't received any applause since the day he died. No. No, and I, yeah. the only, I mean, I know very little about him apart from that one film, The Madness of King George, and obviously season three of Blackadder, which is not so much about him as it is about his absence, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah that one's mostly about George IV, who everybody hates, but Prince oh, George, it's, it's, Prince George. He's the re- it's about the Regency. Yeah. So it's, yeah, which I when, didn't, it took me an embarrassing long time to put that together. <laughs> like, why is he the Prince Regent? Oh, because George was being mad. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, no, uh, King George III was very popular. People liked him because he was a very nice man, generally. Mm-hmm. And he was very nice to everybody when he wasn't being mad. But And George IV, everybody hated. Yeah, well... I mean, but, he did seem like a dick in that one season of Blackadder. I mean, yeah, it's a, not a, not an inaccurate portrayal. <laughs> <laughs> Although he was immensely fat. Well, that was inaccurate then. The well, this is why there's all those jokes in Blackadder about him being immensely fat and his enormous trousers. Sure. Even though Hugh, Hugh Laurie, Laurie is a very lean man, <laughs> is so thin you can practically see through him in that period. <laughs> yeah, but it's like. They just keep insisting that he's massively fat Amazing. because George IV was. And that, I mean, it's quite funny that they keep <laughs> insisting that he's fat. But I don't know if it's true or not. The urban myth is that the reason that it is considered to be correct to keep the bottom button of a waistcoat open when you're wearing a three-piece suit mm-hmm. is because George used to not be able to do up all of his buttons. So he used to leave the bottom one open. And so everybody else started doing it so he wouldn't feel bad. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't even care whether or not it's true. I'm going to assume. I'm just going to keep it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Great. So people who care about that kind of like correctness of dress and stuff, like that's <laughs> why they do that. Anyway, sorry, anyway, revolutions continue. in fiction. So yeah, they they do form a part of a nation's identity when they've happened, and that is something that goes into fictional revolutions as well. Like Star Wars, I think, is a testament to the fact that America still sees itself as a scrappy band of rebels. Yeah, when actually it is now the Empire. And yeah. that's a whole. There's a whole. Other problem. Whole other thing. Um, yeah. In general, I think our, as a, a society, particularly white society, our failure to look back at our past with any degree of um, self-awareness is a real problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not wholly relevant here. The other reason is revolutions have, of all true events, the most satisfying narrative structure. <laughs> that like, is true. If any, see, watch any biopic. And they almost all fail to be compelling stories because lives don't have satisfying narrative structure. So a biopic always ends up, or I never know if you're supposed to say biopic or biopic. Who cares? I don't think it matters. You can say whatever you like, Janine. I might mix it up, say a different one Mix it up, take whatever you like. (laughs) So a lot of the time, and not that there aren't good ones, but a lot of the time they just kind of meander a bit and they get to a point and there's no big inciting incident because it's someone's life. So, and inciting incidents don't happen when you would or want them to. Or there's loads of them Or there's the loads of place. them in the wrong place. They don't make any like, sense. There's no structure. They're two-thirds of the way through and you're like, oh, it. Yeah. And you don't actually like, learn anything that's going to enable you to triumph in the third act because you're, yeah. it's actually really hard to learn stuff. So Life is just extremely messy. Yeah, it's extremely messy. And that's true on an individual level and on a wide societal level. Stuff takes a long time and it doesn't happen in bursts and it's mostly boring. But revolutions <laughs> happen quickly. They involve a lot of people. They have a massive build-up and then a push-through whereupon they either fail or they succeed. Either way, it's narratively interesting. It's either this pathos and tragedy or it's triumph, but it's an ending. And that's really rare. <laughs> so they mm-hmm. make good stories. That is true. They're also hotbeds of sex. Everyone's fucking mm. in a revolution. because I mean, the closest thing to, yeah, to war I guess is sex completely and revolutionaries are traditionally young because and inherently romantic yeah well (laughs) the young thing is is true like it's not 
they might not be romantic, but but they are <laughs> idealistic. Yeah, there's a romance to idealism. It's a lot easier to be idealistic and to also be sure of yourself when you are some hot-headed 19-year-old than it is when you're 45. So there's lots of hot young people to put on a stage <laughs> being passionate. True. Because that's how it happens. Not that there aren't older people who are also involved in revolutions. It just tends to be predominantly the young, which I think is something you can see now. Like there is protest across all levels, but the loudest voices and the most persistent ones and some of the most inspiring ones are young people. Like, and we talk about it all the time. Like that girl who's, who what was her name, who just recently gave that rousing speech about climate change, you know, and she's 16. Yeah. All the kids who have all, like, just gone on strike, who all walked out of yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, that sense of pos- of possibility is a youthful sense. Like, I think anyone who manages to, manages to retain that for a, an entire life is very lucky and very impressive because it's really easy to get beaten um, down. Almost I, yeah, everyone I know is currently quite beaten down <laughs> by everything. And tied up. It's and tied thing. up. Like, you've got rent to get pay. To your 30s, you know? Yeah, you've got a rent, you've got a mortgage, you've got a kid, you've got a like stupid job that sucks the life out of you. You have to paint the kitchen this weekend and you've got to go to the bloody shop and buy yet more sugar soap and yeah. you've got to do the shopping and walk the dog and all of that takes up a lot of time. Yeah, a lot of time. And if you go out striking and hanging around on barricades, then who's going to do that stuff? Yeah, you've not got time to be shot down in the in the street by the military if forces. I'm shot down in the street, who'd look after Livia? Exactly, I mean Connor would, but he would have been shot down okay, in the street Connor. first because he's a lot more hot-headed than you are. Mm, I'm not 100% sure that's true, you know? <laughs> I'm 100% sure that I would get shot down the street and he would be very sensible about it. (laughs) He would be absolutely organising stuff in the background, like running a blood drive somewhere Mm -hmm. and like sensibly getting stuff done while I I would probably get shot by running out and then tripping over. So, (laughs) Well, that's fair. Uh, That is definitely, should a revolution come post-Brexit, that is what will happen to us. And then before we know it, Connor will be prime minister. I mean, I would have thought that was a good thing until I learned that he doesn't believe in dishwashers. (laughs) I can't trust someone who doesn't believe in dishwashers to run any sort of country. Honestly, it's a weird stance he has, but (laughs) eventually I'll talk him out of it. (laughs) Just like get one, but put like do that thing where you put like a cupboard door in front of it so it seamlessly blends oh, in oh nice so he'll, put, he he'll, he'll never he'll just never, as long as he never he'll opens just be like, you know what's weird I never have to do the dishes anymore and then he's going to listen to this and he's going to hear that <laughs> I'm sorry to all Irish people he's going to be like why does Janina think I'm from court <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered that you think I got the accent close enough that it was actually any part of Ireland. <laughs> all those years of acting training didn't <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that it would, it would work out, but it was worth a try. <laughs> um, just watching anyway, re- Revolution. Revolution. I can't remember if I was already in the middle of a thought, but... You were saying people that the people are young and sexy, people and young, young and sexy, sexy people in fiction are preferred. Yeah, a lot of sex. You can... A lot of sex happening. A lot of sex is exciting because it's all fraught, you know, on a battlefield or behind a barricade. And it makes a really interesting state, like I'm being flippant about there being a lot of sex. But it does make a very interesting and dynamic stage on which to set some human drama like it's a really easy way to raise the stakes of a love story is to put a revolution in the background the threat of looming death yeah because this is the one of the big problems in fiction when you're writing fiction as someone who does it professionally is it's really difficult to artificially raise the stakes of whatever is happening in your plot because we don't really live with high stakes but Mm-hmm. If you put that in a book or a TV show, people are just like, I don't care. There's, there's no danger. It's like, <laughs> it's like watching Avengers Infinity War when you know everyone signed on for another three movies, you know? Yeah. It's like, you know, they're fine. Yeah. But when you feel like there's real danger, when you feel like this is 
actually a life or death situation. These people are just trying to bone down, but they can't do that happily because they have to fight for freedom from, you know, the oppressive upper classes. Slash English yeah. people. And it gives you this position of them being able to take a stance of self-sacrifice, right? Like, I can't just be happy yeah. here in your arms having boned five times because <laughs> I believe in the rights of the workers. Um, yeah, it's super interesting it just makes things interesting you don't even have to do any work you just say there's a revolution on and you're like Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> build a barricade and everyone's happy yeah um and it's something that people change through it's a way to have characters develop oh, they can develop yeah like in like in a really kind of superficial way there is a series of military coups in evita by which she changes from some <laughs> tiny little girl like teen teenage girl like 16 or 17 year old who's moved to the big city on her own and is kind of sleeping her way around in order to survive to a woman who seduces the leader of the country to become the first lady right like it's right the the change in governments it's as a background for her personal change so it's like it's interesting parallels it is wild when you think about it that 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 was such a big deal That they got, they totally just got away with making that musical, and then it became a massive film. And then didn't she win like a fucking Oscar for it or something? I can't remember if she won. I think she might have been nominated. She wasn't. That song was everywhere. That "Don't Cry for Me" Argentina song. Yeah, terrible I remember song. That. To be fair, the rest of the Evita does slap. "Don't Cry for Me" Argentina is bullshit, but like, there are some bangers in there. And Antonio Banderas in that film is just prime hot revolutionary material. <laughs> I mean, again, I've not seen this either. So, Evita doesn't really have very many characters. It has Evita and it has what's his name, who she marries, Jonathan Price in the film. Yeah. I should know his name. And it has a couple of other people she sort of steps on on her way to the top. And then the character Antonio Banderas plays is just only ever called Shay. Which I think is in a you know an allusion to Che Guevara, but it just means like he's like he he slots into different roles throughout the show, and he's there to just constantly he's like he's like Jiminy Cricket if Jiminy Cricket <laughs> okay yeah hated Pinocchio a bit, and he just judges your actions, and he's just some random young revolutionary who's there to... He's just a young revolutionary there to keep her on her toes. Yeah. It's a great role, though. It's like, one there, for Ron there as a husband. There are some fucking bangers that he gets to sing, and, yeah, Antonio Medeiros is great. He was... I have such a soft spot for that film in my heart. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. The, um, but Don't Cry For Me, Argentina uh, sucks balls okay. as a song. I do remember it sucking and that's the only song I've ever heard from it. So oh, no, there are some good ones. You should listen to the soundtrack. This is the thing with Andrew Lloyd Webber is um, he always gets famous for his worst stuff. Like Memory is the worst song of all time and it's everyone knows oh. it. Also from the worst musical of all time. And unfortunately I do have a soft spot for it because oh. it was played at my great aunt's funeral. So Oh, oh no, now um, I feel like I'm, an asshole unable to to dislike it i've no idea why it was played at my great aunt's funeral because i have no recollection of her in any way liking cats but uh, (laughs) but it did nonetheless one best original song did evita but not for don't cry for me argentina that wasn't an original song you must love yeah because because obviously don't cry for me argentina was from the original musical so I yeah. think they wrote You Must Love Me specifically so they could nominate, they could submit something. So they could the nominate Academy another Awards. song? Because, yeah, none of the existing songs would count. Oh, it's also a Guinness World Record for the most costume changes in a film. I mean, there are a lot of montages. <laughs> There's 85 costume changes, apparently. So there you go. There's a thing that you've learned from Just today. for her? Yeah. Just for her. Yeah. Just Madonna in a Vita, 85 costume changes. Yeah. I mean, I think she has at least three montages. Which is wild. It is really wild. Are they all on the backdrop of some kind of military coup? I mean, some of... Yeah, a little bit. Like, she... It's basically her changing from being a little provincial girl to a not sophisticated but accomplished... A woman around town. Yep. And then to becoming and then the wife first of a military dictator. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. 
and then like getting sick and suddenly only wearing 90, 90s all the time. <laughs> okay, sure. And there are some kind of fantasy sequences as well where it's, well, not, I don't know if fantasy sequence is the right word that makes it sound like it's something bonkers, but more like she's at a party in one dress and then all of a sudden she's dancing in the room alone in a slightly different dress. Right, you know? okay, yeah, with you. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. I do like a Vita, I like it a lot. Okay. It's much better than Lemus. <laughs> <laughs> I think another reason that this happens, that revolutions or revolution-adjacent movements because you could also argue that jesus christ superstar is sure kind of related to revolutions yeah or like prince of egypt which i don't know if counts because it's not a stage musical but (laughs) is that they do these are significant points in how society has changed like they are the points that matter they're points that you point to on a map and say this is the thing thing where something happened yeah like billy elliott against the backdrop of the minor strike exactly it's weird that we haven't had a massive musical about the Industrial Revolution in <laughs> Manchester or something. Yeah. Like, I was trying to think, like, what would the, like, English... Is there a version of a big musical or a big epic of some kind which would be, like, the English version of Hamilton or Les Mis? And there kind of isn't really, is there? Um, no, there. I think there has been or has been a couple made about certain moments but they just haven't been good I guess they haven't taken off um, I think there's been some done around I mean there's a musical about Elizabeth which I guess is kind of on the backdrop of the early days of the reformation of the church like coming out of Queen Mary's reign sure. let's be honest here Janina until somebody makes one about Dunkirk it will <laughs> nothing will take off in the same way yeah, but like, also there's going to be no English lemurs until someone does one about the war. That's got a load of people singing "Knees Up, Mother Brown" and and <sighs> singing about how great rationing is or something. I'm going to count Mary Poppins because it has that one song about suffrage. It's about <laughs> suffrage. That's an American production. That doesn't count. I love Sister Suffragette. I mean, fair. It's, it's a great best song. song. It's the best song i got absolutely nothing against it. but No. Although I did watch Mary Poppins at Christmas and it did have too, it had too many songs, Janina. I'd forgotten how one. many songs. No, no, the old one. <laughs> I've not seen the new one. But what, It's got too songs, many songs. Which songs would you lose? They're all so good. <sighs> I don't know, like a third of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, you settle in for some film and then all of a sudden, and then there's a song and the song goes on for about six minutes and then you're like, well, that ended okay, good, now we can sail into it. Oh, no, there's one, okay. Another six minutes of knees up, okay. Couldn't, if um, maybe if they were shorter. Maybe, some of them are quite long, but I mean, they're beautiful and perfect and I love them and I, I got really sad watching the new Mary Poppins because I just wanted to be watching the old one. Oh, that's It okay. does this thing, the new Mary Poppins, where all of the songs are obvious stand-ins and yeah. it's just like... Oh, maybe the song isn't bad, but it's not like just remind you of how good the other one is. This is not super califragilisticexpialidocious at all. Well, there you go. Yeah, I've heard that actually. They just makes you go, "Oh, this is very similar, but not quite." Yeah, and maybe that was its fault. It tried to be too similar. It should have been. Yeah, it should have been same thing. Yeah. Anyway, well, people seem to like it. Did all right. Yeah, my mum loved it. We just had World Um, Book Day for the kids and all children in school, like, um, dress up as a book character and then they go and, um, and, like, they dress up as a book character and they take a copy of the book. And a lot of, we sold out of Mary Poppins, but I like working bookshop about six times this year because so many kids wanted to dress up as Mary Poppins. Aw, that's really cool. So, and now they all own the book, which is nice. That is very nice. See, this is the thing. It's done good things. I've never read the book. No, read the <laughs> because book. I always just right. watch the film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Um, I should have read... I mean, and there are like 17, right? Something like that. There's about five, I think. Oh, God yeah, knows what happens in the, the rest thing. of them. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's like, like what happens in the other Anne of Green Gables books. No one knows. You just know what happens. I know because I basically know them all by heart. <laughs> They're so good. They just get better. Rilla of Ingleside, which is the last one, is honestly one of my favourite books of all time. 
right, so I good. my point. Thanks, Janina. Yeah, well, you know, you know, I mean, I maybe I'm just the exception. I am a bit, I am a bit of a nerd. The so. exception that proves my rule. Mm. Yeah, we'll we'll say it that way. Loads of people are going to t- like tweet us now, and be like, I have read them all seven hundred times. I'll be like, fine. <laughs> I think I'm the I same just... with um, the Narnia books. I'm probably the only person who's read all of those. All of the Narnia books. I love the Narnia yeah. books. They're so good. I've read them all. I'm a weirdo. My favorite one is the Magician's Nephew. So. Magician's Review is very good. I think I'm always torn between Voyage of the Dawn Treader and The Last Battle. Just, yeah. I don't know. I just really love the... I love JL and I love, like, the whole yeah. thing with the world, with the dying sun. It's just so creepy and scary. I really feel like it's imperative that we get a film version of that one yes. before we lose Bill Nighy because he should obviously play the uncle. Yes. He... Yes, Definitely. And Gwendolyn Christie as Jadis. F- absolutely. When I will direct this. Who will hire me to direct <laughs> The Magician's Nephew starring Bill Nye and Gwendolyn Christie, please? Honestly, let's fucking start this set of funding. I don't know how one funds a film, but... Neither do I. But we should. When I was I, writing Agapina, I literally just imagined her as Jadis, basically. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. 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 That's who she is in my head. Like this just absolutely terrifying column of like slightly otherworldly arrogance, which is both yeah. awe inspiring and you kind of love it, but also you're terrified. Yeah. No, I can see that completely. But yeah, that's gone off the track a little bit. Back to Revolutions, Dana. Yeah. I think, well, okay. So we've got revolutions are an important part of countries' individual identities. Yes. They are narratively satisfying in a way that most historical events are not. Yep. Um, they give a strong background for painting personal dramas. Yep. Uh, which is important. And they are of historical import to a lot of people, regardless of personal emotional things. But to be honest, the thing I think that gets them, the, the cap on all of that for me is, as I said at the beginning, one of the things that you need in order to have a successful revolution is hope. Widespread optimism and belief. And I think that that is one of the key things that people are looking for when they look for entertainment. Ah, yes. Is it's a, it's a like a spiritual nourishment to watch something that makes you feel optimistic about the world. And even if you watch something about a, a revolution that fails, it still comes from that place of change is worth fighting for and it's something that we can hope for even if hope seems impossible because the fight is noble and it's worthwhile and there is something better that we can achieve together like that regardless of any individual outcome of any individual revolution because loads of them do fail yeah they still reaffirm that message of fighting fighting for something and i think that that's something that filters down to people on an individual sort of macro level where you want to you know feel that your life can improve and that it's worth working on it to improve you are so i think making me feel very inspired (laughs) but that's what fiction is for right like not all the time sometimes like with all art sometimes it's there to challenge us and to educate us and um all that sort of thing but i think one of the driving things that keeps us coming back to fiction as a medium whatever form that takes is we want to feel hopeful and revolutions are inherently hopeful yeah yeah i feel like now i want to stand on a barricade and sing a song (laughs) not very well obviously (laughs) I mean, no one here is going to stop you. I feel like Just you might about one second into me singing this <laughs> I uh, take after my mother when it comes to singing voices. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but for that one second, it'd be great. Yeah, I would love it. Well, do you know, I learned a lot. Yeah, do you have any questions? I might um, not be able to, you know. 
no I've, i mean i feel so like i've learned a lot it, about musicals in general comedy? never realized that there was this great period in musicals where they were doing big mad spectacular things with barricades and helicopters like it's fucking the 80s worst in musicals. musicals 80s 80s and early 90s in musicals i fucking hate it it's, it's like miss saigon les mis phantom of the opera it's like everything is massive and there's no real truth to it like the characters are very small and empty and there's no growth and everything is because it's all about the spectacle rather than mm. the human drama and I rather cannot than stand about the it. story yeah and I hate it I hate it and I'm so glad that that we have moved beyond it was everyone just doing way too much coke probably I, th- I mean I think it was just the just, fashion yeah just, just, just to do fashion. everything was very big in the 80s yeah and I mean to be fair it that's how you get to the next stage, right? That's how we get out of song and dance, sort of tap dancing musicals, which don't get me wrong, I fucking adore. But <laughs> that's how we get to the point where now we have experimental things and it's not all happy clappy and there's horribly dark musicals now, which I don't know if there would have been if mm. we hadn't gone through that. I mean, they probably so, were all the time, but like, I mean, big successful Broadway musicals that are also a bit dark and depressing. So what you're telling me is that like Le Mans and Miss Saigon and Phantom of the Opera are like the hair metal and then <laughs> you get the kind of Nirvana backlash. Yeah, maybe. So what's like the Nirvana, the, Nirvana, uh, the grunge of musicals or musical yeah. theatre? But we do have to pay for all of that uh artistic evolution with having now in the lexicon the phrase hip opera yeah we do have to have to deal with that yeah. now yeah because uh, just in case anyone does not know the uh, hip opera it comes from the term rock opera which is like jesus christ superstar is a rock opera and why it's called that not just a musical is because it's sung through there's no dialogue oh. and hamilton is the same it is wrapped or sung almost entirely through so rather than just calling it a straight musical. It's a hip-hopera, which is a horrible term. But it does mean something. It does define the genre. It's just shitty. It just sounds awful to human ears. Well, see, look, I learned another thing. (laughs) Yeah. Endless learning. You're welcome. I feel like I've learned not today because I've also watched a load of that show about Formula One on Netflix, which I thought would be extremely boring and is actually quite a great. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to watch it. I totally recommend it. Okay. You would not think that it was interesting in any way, shape or force, but it really is. I mean, this happens sometimes. I didn't think that a book about football would be interesting, but then I read that book about football that Nick Hornby wrote and it was quite good. Oh, yeah, you see? Much like that. It's not very much about the driving bit because who cares? Mm -hmm. But a lot about like what goes on around them in order to get to the point where the very very fast men and the very very fast cars can do the driving sure which as it turns out is very interesting Hmm. so yeah i believe you it's been a learning day (laughs) yeah what are we going to talk about next time next time we're back to my comfort zone to be honest which is (laughs) ancient filth Excellent. And this question comes from David C. Shipley on Twitter. I made him phrase this as a question because he initially phrased it as a statement. So he has phrased the question (laughs) as... We're not here to answer your statement. We're not here to answer your statements. Um, (laughs) What links an actress, an emperor and a goose? I feel like he might already know the answer. He does know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) But I do not. So I'm very excited. And um, the answer or the you know the roundabout way is that we are going to byzantium Ooh. and we're going to read a book called the secret history the original the secret se- history the, not the secret history that i've already read not the one you've already read this one's by a man named propertius but i, I would say it's as good can uh, i read donata again instead because i very much love that book yeah sure great just read it anytime bring it up whenever <laughs> So that's next time. And if other people have questions for us that they would like us to answer as well as Janina answered this question, then you can tweet us at, at sexyhistorypod. Or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Or we now have a Kofi, which we thank do. you. And thank you so much to everyone who's already sent us some 
virtual coffees with it. We got more than enough to pay our hosting fees, which is great. And just really, you sent us some such nice messages and just the fact that people were willing to buy us coffee and send nice things to us, which just touched our little hearts. Really, really lovely. It was really lovely. So we don't need like we pay their hosting fees but we are always interested in money (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you wanted to throw us a few quid that is much appreciated and you can do so at bit.ly slash uh support sexy history yeah or you can find the links on all of our twitter and facebook facebook is facebook.com slash sexy without the e history pod although on kofi when you go to it it makes you click a thing to say that you're 18 and over because we've got the word sexy and a a boob in the cover picture so a marble boob so there's a marble yeah there's there's boobs everywhere actually and yeah and a drawing of a boob obviously if you're not if you're under 18 you're not allowed to look at cartoonish boobs your eyes will burn out so (laughs) you will die (laughs) so yeah thank you for your patience while we skipped an episode while oliver moved to vienna Um, yeah vienna is one of those places that like I I haven't been there and I only know about it from movies and books and like Sound of Music so it always feels like a story book place to me I don't believe it's real yeah to fairyland it doesn't help that he keeps sending me messages saying things like a literal horse and cart just went by and there is a man here playing like the clarinet and busker (laughs) and I'm so okay so you've moved to 1840 okay yeah yeah (laughs) So, yeah, so he's moved to 1840, mm-hmm. but he will be have internet again soon, so that would be nice. That will be nice. But yeah, I think that's it. Is that it? You can follow me at Nuclear Teeth. Uh, you can follow me at J9 Edith. You can find out how Oliver's doing in Vienna at, at Kiwa. And I think that's it. I think that is it. Bye, Janina. Bye.